0: Good morning, New Hope family. Good morning. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad to be back. If you're new at New Hope, um, I've been on a break for six weeks and took an extended break. As of yesterday, I had pretty good beard going on. <laughs> yep. And and then talked to my wife and said, I think I would be a huge distraction. Um, yep. It is actually. Yeah, here you go. Um, it was a great way to go into Home Depot with nobody knowing who I was. Yeah. <laughs> that worked really well. But I, I got to do a lot of fishing. Um, Lori and I, Laura Lee, and I got to get away and do some camping and um, cooking out over the open fire. And I did some writing, and it was refreshing. But I'm so glad to be back at it this morning and able to jump into this with you. We're going to be back in the E2E study. I want to pray with you in just a minute. We're going to be looking at the book of Leviticus this morning, just a kind of a survey. Who did their devotions in the book of Leviticus this week? Yeah, right. Same in the nine o'clock service, too. It's not the one you typically go to, right, to find things that would encourage you. Um, It's called the book of the law by a lot of people uh, because it's full of rules and regulations. But what I want you to see this morning is it's actually a book of grace. And grace leaks off the pages, and you're going to discover why. You might remember the last time we were together, we were in the book of Exodus. And wrapping up Exodus, we looked at the Ark of the Covenant. We looked at the tabernacle. And we'll get into that in just a minute to help us appreciate what's going on with the handoff here. What we discovered in Exodus was though, that God himself gave the formula for approaching God. So God himself gives the formula for humans who are flawed to approach God that starts in Exodus and then it really comes full frontal in the book of Leviticus. And you're gonna see grace this morning, but before we do that, let's pray together. Would you join me in that? Father, I thank you for what you have impressed upon Moses' mind to write down thousands of years ago, and how it actually does translate for us today, and how we can understand it, how it can actually speak into our world. So we invite right now that you would cause the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, our guide, cause us to have enlightenment and understanding of the things that have been written down in these ancient texts about how we're actually supposed to approach you. And we'll, Father, we'll give you the praise and the glory for that, but we would ask that beyond giving you praise for what you've written down, we would ask that you would translate it into action in our life, that perhaps we would not only be more encouraged, but that we'd be willing to speak boldly, perhaps this week, into the lives of people who are precious to you, helping them understand how they can approach you. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. I want to ask you to go to the book of Leviticus if you happen to have a Bible with you. Maybe you have it electronically or you have a hard copy. Uh, You'll see a lot of the verses on the screen if you're new here. That will help you follow along. Here's what you find in Exodus, and here's the order if you're not familiar with the Bible. Genesis, first book. Exodus, second book. Leviticus, third book. It's the third of five that Moses wrote. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy; Those are the five books of Moses. Leviticus is the third in the order. But Exodus, when it comes to the end, it hits the screeching halt in chapter 40. And the last three verses of Exodus tell us that God was going ahead of the people of Israel in a pillar of fire, think of like a tornado or a twister, by day, except it was more stationary and slow-moving, and a pillar of fire by night lighting up the way for them. But before you get to those last three verses, you discover something remarkable. This tabernacle that's been built to hold the Ark of the Covenant, that very, very large tent is not something Moses can go into at that moment, even though God wanted him to go in there. We discover he can't actually enter the tabernacle because the glory of God, that cloud filled the tabernacle. Let me take you on the screen to Exodus 40, verse 35. It says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's called the tent of meeting, but it's also called the tabernacle. It's got these interchangeable names, and in the middle of it was this very elaborate tent, was this holy of holies section, And that's where the Ark of the Covenant sat, which was to be the visible image of the presence of God. That comes to an end. And then comes Leviticus, immediately linked with Exodus. And for very good reason. It's the third book. The very good reason is the very first phrase of Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, and he called to him. So Moses can't go inside the tabernacle. So God's inside there and He calls out to Moses and invites something very specific to happen. Now, the Hebrew people, the very ancient people, before it was called the book of Leviticus, they treated it this way. You see this word on the screen, it's in your notes this morning, Yavikra. And this Yavikra means, and He called. So the best information we have is that the ancients, they actually called what we call the the book of Leviticus, Yavikra, and He called because of that very first phrase. But over time, as the Greeks picked up the Old Testament and the Hebrew copy, they they looked at all that was going on inside the book of Leviticus, and they saw it as law. And so they decided to name it a a Greek name, Luticum. And then eventually, it was translated into Latin. And in the Latin Vulgate, it was translated into another word again, and 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 meant Leviticum. And then came the word Leviticus. Why? Well, because of the Levites. The Levites were descended from the tribe of Levi. They were the priests. And the entire book seems to be written to the priest with all the laws about how people are to approach God. And so the name Leviticus stuck. So the ancient Jews, they referred to it also as the book of the law, because it was full of all of these laws. All of that aside, Leviticus, addresses the really big question. How do I, how do we as flawed humans approach a holy God? If we've got failure in our life, if we come up short, and we all do, what gives us the right to approach and connect with God? What you find is a theme coming out of Leviticus, and the the theme is that the sacrifice actually provides a way to God. So the book of Leviticus can be understood if you know God's purpose, and God's purpose very specifically is He wants His own, including us, to be set free to worship Him. So That's a theme that's going throughout the early part of the Old Testament that people would be set free in order to worship Yahweh. So you might remember when we were in the book of Exodus going all the way back to chapter 4 and all the way through chapter 12, Moses was in this struggle with Pharaoh, and the struggle with Pharaoh was to do specifically to get the Israelites who were slaves set free so that they could go out and worship God. Look with me at Exodus chapter 5 verse 1. Moses and Aaron came to, and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. The, the feast was for worship. So in a very real sense, the exodus from Egypt, it was incomplete until worship of the one true God was going to take place, and it was going to take place at Mount Sinai, and that's where it would begin. So Exodus 3.12 reads this way. God speaking, by the way. He said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So if you were to summarize all that you spent that time in Exodus on, if you were to summarize it, you'd do it this way. Israel was set free from slavery They were released from Egypt, they were brought into a relationship with God that they didn't have before, precisely so that they would be free to worship God, which would be fulfilling God's goal for the Exodus. So it's safe to say that Leviticus can be understood. Here's the way you would understand it. Our God desires to be in communal relationship with His creation. He wants to have relationship with humanity, especially a relationship with his own who will worship him. But, and there's always a but, isn't there, church? But, because God cannot tolerate sin, there's a major obstacle that has to be dealt with. Israel has been dabbling in idolatry You remember in chapter 32 of Exodus that they got off into the golden calf incident and they began worshiping the golden calf. Moses had to deal with them on that. It presents this major dilemma, and God had to warn Israel immediately after that. Look with me at the warning. It comes right out of Exodus 33.5. The Lord had said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now this is the same God who led them out of Egypt. And now He's saying, if I had it my way right now, if I came in your midst, I would eviscerate you. You would not exist if I dwelt among you. And that's just after the golden calf problem. The the word destroy that's used there means to utterly consume you. So here's the dilemma. How can a holy God be in community with a rebellious people? Well, Leviticus actually addresses that very issue. And the burden on this book, we're just going to be in it today, it is to demonstrate how do humans access God. Meaning, if it's written down and God caused Moses to write it down, it must be that that great bridge can be crossed. That this gulf between fallen humans and a holy God It actually can have a bridge across it. Our responsibility is to understand how. Here's two ways to understand how. Very specifically, only by humble confession of personal unworthiness, saying, God, I know I'm not worthy. I know I'm a sinner. And that has to be followed by genuine, heartfelt obedience to the actions that are prescribed by God. Those are the preconditions that will open up fellowship with God which brings us to the key verse of the book of Leviticus. I'm guessing no one here has probably memorized any verses in Leviticus. Maybe you have, but if you were going to, you would want to memorize Leviticus 17:11. This is the way it reads. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Now let's just pause there for a second. We'll keep the verse on the screen for a moment. Think of yourself biologically sitting where you're at right now. If you're watching at home, you're watching the broadcast, you're listening on iTunes, you're podcasting, just think of your own biological, physical body right now. You have a warm fleshly tone to your skin because blood is coursing through your body. Blood brings life and brings coloration to your skin. It causes you to be alive. And this is what God is summarizing here. Look at it again. The life of the flesh, it's in the blood. You've got life because you've got blood in you. And God's saying, I'm going to allow this. I'm going to allow you to use blood on the altar to make an atonement for the sin in your life, for your souls. And then he summarizes it by saying, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So we're talking about life being exchanged in order to gain life. The word that's atoned is kafar It's a Hebrew word. Send your notes also this morning. And it actually means very specifically to appease or to placate, cancel something. But you notice it doesn't say remove. We'll come back to that in a moment. Let's go to Leviticus verse one. We're only gonna do a couple verses here because we're about to take communion, but we'll set it up this way. Go with me to Leviticus chapter one verse one. Then the Lord called to Moses, we just discovered that, and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now remember, Moses can't go in. So God's doing with Moses what he does with every single one of us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you are a believer because God called you. He's called to you to draw you into relationship. God called to Moses, and so we have that word that's used there, "Yavikra." God called, and He said, here's Moses how you're going to approach me. Verse 2, saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the animals from the herd of the flock. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's multiple forms of sacrifices and offerings that are made to God. There's grain offerings that are brought before Him. There's drink offerings. They would pour out wine. But the one that was most often used and therefore considered the most effective in the sense that we're going to talk about this morning was the burnt offering. And so you find the book of Leviticus begin talking about the burnt offering right away in the very first couple of verses. Interestingly, the word that we use today in the English language, holocaust, is rooted in the Hebrew word for this burnt offering, that particular word that you see in your notes this morning, something that would ascend, that would rise up. But holocaust means not just rising up, but that it's utterly consumed. There's nothing left afterwards, nothing remained. But there's a specificity in verse 2. And the specificity is that these individuals who would be bringing these offerings to God, they would be taking them from their domestic herds and from their flocks. In other words, no wild animals because wild animals would be unacceptable. Why? Well, First of all, you can't go out and capture a deer and bring it to God because you have no relationship with that deer. You can't go get a wild goat and bring a wild goat to God because there's no relationship. That plays very powerfully into the imagery that's going on here. So God says, you're going to bring it from your herd, you're going to bring it from your own flocks because the wild animals don't belong to anyone. No one has ownership of them. Therefore." They have no identification with that person who's coming to God, meaning that giving a wild animal over would mean nothing. There's no cost involved. And God says, this is going to cost you something. So the domesticated animals, they represent real cost to the individual. Now Leviticus spells out that there's three types of animals that would be used for these type of offerings. There's the bull. And then going down in descending order, there's the sheep, and there's the goats. And then if a person was really poor, they could bring turtle doves, and they could bring pigeons. But there's going to be an exchange of some type. Interestingly, the animals that are listed in Leviticus are actually the same five groups of animals that are listed all the way back in in Genesis 15 when God's dealing with Abraham. And He says, Abraham, you're going to lay out a sacrifice for this covenant that I'm about to make. These are the exact same animals that are used there. But the type of animals that are used by these individuals, they correspond directly to the donor's capacity. In other words, their wealth. If they're very, very wealthy, they could bring a bull. If they were of the middle class working category, they could do the sheep and the goats because that's about what they could afford. And if they're very, very poor, they could bring the turtle doves and pigeons. Only the wealthy could afford bulls. The middle class could only afford the sheeps and the goats. And the poor could afford the turtle doves. But in every single case, all of the sacrifices were literally sacrifices because meat was a very rare luxury in this age. People didn't eat meat commonly with their meals. Very much an agrarian society, eating vegetables, eating the greens, eating the grains, but meat, that was reserved for feast, and it is very costly to burn an entire animal, especially on the altar. You're not like inviting your buddies over to say, hey, you're going to get a rack of lamb out of this, because it was all consumed, totally consumed on the altar. Everything is being given over to the Lord. And King David himself acknowledged, I'm not going to give any of this as a cheap offering to God. It says this in 2 Samuel 20, 24, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. There's no sacrifice involved in that. Yet what we discover is it was possible for the very, very poor to offer something as small as a bird, meaning this for us, it's not about the amount of money the matter of cost is not the primary factor involved. It's the attitude of the heart. Is this person being obedient? Is the worth of the sacrifice measured by this person being sold out to God? You notice very interestingly in the New Testament when Jesus called out an elderly woman who was putting money in an offering, that he called his disciples over and he said, Look at her. And they watched across the temple courtyard as this elderly woman was putting a coin in a jar. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, I'm telling you right now, all those rich people who are standing in line, what they're giving does not measure up to what she's putting in the offering jar right now. She put in a lepta, which is an eighth of a cent. It's all she had. And Jesus said, I'm telling you, What she gave is more than all those wealthy individuals combined. Why? Because it was coming exactly from the heart because God is always watching the heart. King David says, I'm not going to give anything to God that doesn't cost me anything at all because it's my heart attitude that reveals what's really going on. Just remember this. God is not impressed by bank accounts. God is impressed by the obedience of the heart. Here comes verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect, he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of the meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Now, a male without defect, really interesting. Somebody approached me after the first service and said, why does it always say a firstborn male? Because in that economy, that was the thing of highest value. So God's right away asking for something very expensive, and it has to be perfect, which means complete. So this offering has to be physically perfect. Now the priests, they were extraordinarily, excruciatingly meticulous about their examination of these animals. They were so cautious about what was being brought. They actually turned it into a corruption system hundreds of years later. You can only buy your animals from them that they would approve. But here in this point in time, if they discovered any flaws whatsoever, it would fail inspection and you had to start all over again. But here comes verse 4, and verse 4 begins the real grittiness of this description. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Now, mind you, the individuals personally brought their animals to the priest. You couldn't hire a servant, you couldn't get a friend to do it for you, you personally had to bring your choice animal before the priest and then announce what your attentions are. And God's saying, before they can do anything, they're going to press heavily on the head of this animal. Let me help you picture what's going on, because this is really implying an exertion of pressure. This Hebrew word that's used here, samach, it's talking about leaning heavily on. I don't know if you've ever leaned into a goat before when it's trying to push back against you. Even when it's just standing there, if you begin pushing against the goat, it's an immovable object. Now, they might be light enough for you to get your arms around their legs and pick them up, but try and move them when they lock their legs and you put your hand on their head. I've done it. I know. They will push back, and they can knock you over let alone doing this to a one-year-old bull, a heifer. Or imagine a fluffy little lamb. And you think that they're a pushover until you begin leaning on their head and pushing. And that bristly fur is pushing into your palm. And God's saying, I want you to lean heavily into that animal. Why? For one, you're not looking off in the field you're not looking for your friends when you're leaning on that animal. You're looking in their eye, and you're making eye contact. And you're feeling that living body pushing back against you. And you're vividly impressing upon your own mind. There's a cost involved here. This individual understands as they're vividly impressing upon their mind the wages of sin. The paycheck is really death. Death. Symbolically, they're expressing that they know they personally deserve the death penalty for their sin, but they're being excused by virtue of another life taking their place, a life for a life. Romans 6, 23 says, the wages, the paycheck of sin is death. It's true for every single human who has ever lived. The paycheck is death, and because the paycheck of sin is death, the sinner has to die, or the one that is a substitute has to die. Now Jewish tradition affirms, and this isn't recorded in the Bible, but Jewish tradition tells us that in the midst of laying the hands on the head, there's a public confession going on. This individual begins praying out loud before the priest, confessing what they had done, how they had offended God. So a Open verbal confession of sin, and here's what's really significant that's happening in this moment beyond that. Look with me, and I put this in three points for you on the screen. I think it's in your notes as well, so you understand there's a transferring of all their rights to the animal, transferring it over to God, and this is at great cost because it's the finest of their herd. It's a perfect specimen, one they would love to keep for breeding. But they're turning it over to God. And number two, there's this acknowledgement going on that the person bringing the sacrifice, they're acknowledging, I deserve to die. And number three, there's a dependence going on here, a dependence upon the sacrifice on which the iniquity, the sin is being laid. The Bible calls it an imputation. Sin is being imputed to that one. So placing the hand on the animal's head, leaning heavily into that bristly fur, looking deep into their eyes and knowing this is a real living being, and acknowledging sin at that moment, is now on the animal. And here's where it gets really visceral, kind of graphic. Verse 5, "'He shall slay the young bull before the Lord.'" And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs, he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a smoothing, soothing aroma to the Lord." Put your, try and put yourself in the context of this setting. The, the tabernacle had to be an incredibly noisy place. You've got all these animals around. The entire family is there, children are running around, all these people engaging in talks, some trying to get the attention of the priest. It's not a big area, but there's a lot of people there, and they all want to do the same thing, and the smell has to be off the charts. And you know the sheep, the goat, the bull that you just brought in can see other cows and other sheep and other goats being slaughtered right in front of them. How graphic is this? And so the lead worshiper of the family, the head of the family, if the father is still alive, he's the lead worshiper. And If if the woman is a widow, she has to find somebody to help her with this. But the whole family is gathered together. And along with the whole family, eventually they get the attention of the priest and they need to identify clearly why they're there and what they brought and what their offering is and for what purpose, and the priest understands that. Now the person personally has a responsibility of slaughtering the animal. So God said that He's going to do this in front of the whole community. So it's not handed off to the priest to do it in some back corner. It's done right in front of the family, and typically it's done by slitting the throat So they've connected with this animal, pressed their head into the animal, and now killing the animal and collecting the blood in such a way that it's cleanly drained. The Bible is very graphic about these things, but now the priest has a responsibility. The priest has the responsibility of taking this blood that's been gathered and walking over to the altar and splattering against the altar. Making a very visual image for everyone imprinted upon them. And and finally, the priest takes the pieces of the animal from the hands of the worshiper and arranges them on the altar. Now, how connected are you to that animal at that point? You've just washed their entrails, you've scrubbed their legs. You've leaned into them while they're still alive and looking deep into those brown eyes. And now you've had to execute this very one who's going to die for you. And the entire family stands as the priest lays it on the altar and they're watching it burn until it's totally and utterly consumed. And this was carried out day after day after day, after day, until 70 A.D. when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem and took out the temple. And here to this point in 2023, there has never been a sacrifice offered since 70 A.D. Jesus said in his own lifetime, within a generation of my life, Rome's going to come and destroy and they're going to take out Brick by brick, stone by stone, and that temple will not continue to exist. We're not, we're not going to go off on that trail this morning. Here's what I wanted you to catch as you were looking at that verse. Did you notice that the blood was handled only by the priest, which indicates to us the blood is actually the most holy element of the sacrifice? reminding every single person they each deserved death and they had to have blood offered for their sins and the priest had to be the one to deal with it. And so we come all the way back to that verse I said you might want to memorize from Leviticus 17.11. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And we get that detail that closes it out. This offering, it says is a soothing aroma. Look with me on the screen at verse 9. An offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. I want to make sure I understand that right. These offerings that are burnt in the fire, verse 9 says this is an aroma pleasing to God. Is, is this like God having giant nostrils that are flaring? and Wow, steak smells good today. And that's not what's going on. That's what we tend to think of. Because we would walk into someone's yard, we see the smoke going up, and we've been invited to a barbecue, and wow, put the chicken on the barbie for me. We go there because we're carnal, and we tend to think of the things that will satisfy our appetite. And there's this aroma rising, according to Scripture, that's filling the atmosphere, so it's easy to think in a physical sense that that's what this is talking about. But actually, it's, it's intended symbolically here. It's intended symbolically, more accurately, this way to think of it. The word that's used here, the word, the noun, is actually talking about a pleasing, pleasant aroma. That means to tranquilize something. So it's soothing, it's the image of tranquility. It's an ancient way of describing peace. So the point is this the sacrifice, the aroma, it's brought tranquility between the person making the offering and God, the one that they worship. So worship is supposed to bring pleasure to God. Well, this exact same imagery is used of Jesus and His sacrifice for you. Look with me on the screen at this, Ephesians 5.2. Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma." The difficulty with the Old Testament sacrifices, they were temporary. They couldn't remove sin. They could only placate. They they could only soothe, but they couldn't actually remove, they don't actually remove sin. Hebrews 10.4 emphasizes that. It says this, "...for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin." Rather, what the Levitical offerings did is they covered over sin until the point in time when the perfect sacrifice would come and it would take away all the sin of the world, which means this church, all of the Old Testament offerings for all of those sins, all the way up until 70 A.D., they were all inferior to Jesus because Jesus offered Himself once for all dying for the entire sin of mankind for those who would confess Him as Jesus Christ, Lord of their life. Done, finished, it's over. And that's why Jesus could say, it is finished, one sacrifice for all time. So what do we do with this information? We're about ready to take communion. My son Derek's gonna come lead us in communion in just a moment. Knowing that God is so holy That he must execute wrath against sin forces me to recognize there's no wrong that's going to escape judgment because he sees it all. But also at the same time, I know that God is so merciful because I've just read Leviticus. He's so merciful that he allows a substitute to bear his wrath in our place. And that drives me to be thankful for this great salvation that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. How about you? takes us to this place of gratitude. So here's three things you could carry out the door with you this morning. It'll come up on the screen. Here's the way for us to remember, and it's forcefully seen in the book of Leviticus. First of all, there's this principle of identification. You picture in your mind the image of this guy leaning into that animal, pressing heavily on their head, and identifying with it. Well, a believer identifies with the death and the resurrection, the burial of Jesus. We do that through communion, and we also do it through baptism. What a perfect picture. Buried with Christ in in death in the baptism waters, raised again to newness of life coming up out of the water. That was the reason it was put in place. So we would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll put myself on display. I'm willing to be part of that. That's that identification. And then there's the principle of substitution. This innocent animal is reckoned as sin for us and suffers and dies, which is total foreshadow of the death of Jesus. And then there's the principle of propitiation, this offering of the blood, the visible evidence that life had to be exchanged for life. And that blood of Jesus, say amen if you agree with this, the eternal satisfaction of God for that once and for all ever accomplished is in Jesus Christ, your Lord. He did it. He did it all. It eternally satisfies God. So the grace which Leviticus puts on display, it's found wholly in Jesus. And I don't mean H-O-L-Y, holy. I mean W-H-O-L-L-Y, in other words, complete. It's found completely and wholly in Jesus. The Old Testament is just typology. It's pointing the way to His future work. It could only point the way to the need for something more perfect that would absolutely obliterate sin once and for all. So I end with Hebrews, and bear with me on this as I read this to you, Hebrews 9 verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So ultimately, here's what Leviticus teaches you. Leviticus teaches us that forgiveness and fellowship with God, it is not cheap. It's free, but it costs everything. And that's why Romans six twenty three says, For the wages of sin, it's death. But the free gift of God, it's free to you. The free gift of God, you get eternal life out of the deal because of Christ Jesus our Lord and what He did for you on the cross. How great is that news, New Hope? I'm going to pray with you right now. Derek's going to come and lead us in communion, and we're going to close in worship today. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for the imagery that we're about to experience here to remind ourselves again of the incredible sacrifice that was paid for us in the body and the blood. So thank You for reminding us. Thank You for the imagery out of the book of Leviticus and showing us grace as it's just jumping off the pages because it's who You are. Thank You, Father for the relationship that we have in you through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.